Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. So today, Stevie, I want to talk about songs, but I want to talk about... I want to put the word aria in here. And first of all, what does the word aria encompass? Does it mean air? Yes, it's Italian for air, and it was adopted in uh, about 1600. It's become a specific term now, Mm -hmm. because air, of course, just meant melody, song... Tune. Tune. It's basically talking about a fairly simple melody. But then it was adopted to describe an operatic song. But, of course, there are so many different kinds of song that... And in Pergin, they they actually call it Solveig's song, not Solveig's aria, don't they? Yes, there there are words to that. That was incidental music to... Was it Ibsen? Pergin? Yeah. That had words, so that's quite rightly called Solveig's song, but it can be played as an orchestral piece and usually is now. And the word aria sometimes is a bit off-putting for people because they immediately go, oh, that'll be opera and I won't know about it. Well, it is now. It is now. That's the way... Think of London Derriere, oh, Danny Boy. Yes, uh, of course. I mean, the thing is not to get too bogged down in titles too much. What aria as description of a song in an opera does is differentiated from, for example, a pop song or a lute song, which were some of the original songs, or a troubadour's song. So when we talk about types of song, there are many and they are all subtly differentiated. Do you think one of the definitions of aria or song is that an ordinary person, i.e. not a singer, can sing it, can represent it? Is that what a song is? Is something that other people can then sing along? I mean, when you think of the musicals, people knew all the words to My Old Man Said Follow the Van, and the whole house would sing the whole thing. In pubs, everybody knew, oh, Danny Boy or whatever it was, and they could all sing along to it. There are two things. You see, folk song was something that was handed down from uh, generation to generation. And although there were famous folk song singers... The plain fact of it is that a folk song was something that anybody could pick up. And I've been to numerous gatherings in in Ireland, for example, where at a certain point of the evening, somebody stands up and says, I'm going to sing you something. And so they they sing a song and then someone else will stand up and, and sing a song or recite a poem. I think that's probably more particular now as a cultural thing in Ireland than it is in in Britain. But every nation has their folk song history, anthology. When in the Upper Hunza region, and I was there when I was about 35, going right into the back of beyond and going to Shimshal, 
which was the prison valley where nobody really ever went to. And I think I was the first British person to go there after Sir John Hunt. Quite a hairy place, and it took three days to get there. When we arrived there, because we were so exceptionally kind of different, and because our leader was actually the cousin of the Mir of Hunza, so he had royal blood in him, they sang a welcome to us. And then they said to me and the two 19-year-old boys I was with to do our song back. And, of course, we didn't have the tradition. The boys did that sort of boy thing of being 19 years old and just crossed their arms like that and looked at the ground. <laughs> so I was left to carry the song burden of singing it back to them. I couldn't think what to sing, so I actually sang back the song they'd sung to me. The interesting thing was, but I sang homemade words or la-la-la sounds or something. Mm. And they leant forward. They leant forward and listened because it was... And then at the end, they all went, oh, that was very good, and all went, well done, well done. Ah, yeah. they went, that was great. Yeah. It was really important yeah. to offer this song. Singing a song, I think, has a really important cultural function because, of course, when we think about the way that we articulate what we want to communicate is done through what we now call musical means. You might say something very softly because you want to be sensitive about it. You might say something very loudly because you want to impress or be heard at the back. <laughs> um, but singing developed out of an understanding that sound is very communicative. So it organises, uh, songs organise our voice and our pitch into something that can carry a narrative, for example. So folk songs can be a love song, or they can be to do with history, or they can be pure narrative, i.e. telling a story. One particularly lovely English folk tune that comes to mind is the Lincolnshire Poacher. Over several verses, it tells a story about hares, gamekeepers, and the joys of poaching. When I was born a apprentice in famous Lincolnshire, full well I served my master for more than seven years, till I took up to poaching, as you will quickly hear. Oh, tis my delight on the shining night in the season of the year. Some folk songs have masses of verses. Well, think of the Volga Boatman song, Yo, Heave Ho, and they're just... And it's all to do with the pulling of the ropes and the That's slow... Right. That's and right. the leaning, and the song made the, the repetitive and draining nature of the work less ghastly. terrible, repetitive things. People had songs because a song took you through it somehow. Well, it pins down a mood and an emotion or your interest in a story. It pins you down. You concentrate. And that's the rather wonderful thing about groups when someone sings a song. It's the most marvellous thing. I wish it happened more, or at least we were more aware of our tradition. Ralph Vaughan Williams and Cecil Sharp, for example, they collected folk songs. 
because there was something very, very powerful in the way English folk songs were constructed. It felt also to be part of our national being. So quite a lot of folk songs are pastoral. They talk about life in the country. There are many more folk songs in England that are basically set in a world that we are nostalgic for. If this reflects a kind of time in history which has simply gone. There seems to be that there is music around and there's a lot of rap music and all modern music, which I'm afraid to say, Mr Barlow. You and I have rather slipped off the side of the table as appreciating modern, very modern I music. I take exception to that. No, you know you don't know a thing about it. Um, but <laughs> this is what she's is, really like. This, this in, in... The truth is, is that with the old songs, even though I wasn't alive, when you hear dashing away with a smoothing iron and you realise that somebody was ironing, they had to put the iron to get hot there, and then it was on a Monday morning when I beheld my darling, she looked so sweet and charming, so a man comes through, she looked so sweet and nimble and ironing off, and she was pressing things, dashing away with a smoothing iron, and he used to go and visit this kind of, well, not a milkmaid, in this case she was an ironing girl, just a servant girl, and he used to hang around and see if he could get a steal a kiss from her or a promise that she'd meet him. Just as everything has changed. Everything has changed. So instead of walking to the next village and walking as you go along and making up a walking song or somebody's got a riding going along on an old nag off to market, GDG, home again, home again with a fat pig, all those sorts of little diddly-doddly songs that went along, all those have gone because people have got things in their ears with somebody else's music coming in. So we're not making or doing our own music. Before, everybody, everybody sang they did, and it's a very illuminating thing to look back and see what was going on in society, because you're absolutely right. There would be a piano in a house, even if it wasn't played that often. You can go later into Victorian times and you will find a, a type of song that's called a parlour song. Yeah. Is that coming to the garden moor? Yes, that's exactly right. John McCormack's Come Into the Garden Maud, based on an Alfred Tennyson poem, is a very good example of Victorian parlour music in that the melody is simple and replicable. You can remember it very quickly. New songs would have been put onto the piano. People would learn it and sing along. I dreamt I dwelt in marble halls. Pale hands I loved beside the Shalimar. That's right. All those sorts of Victorian... You see, all of these songs that actually still exist in people's memory. Mm -hmm. You can mention songs like that. And you mentioned my old man said, follow the van. Later on, the music hall song became the song that everybody would walk out of the theatre humming. Down at the old bull and bush. That's Down. right. And uh, I remember when I was young, my mother was taught all these sort of music hall Cockney songs yeah. by her mother. And so when we were on holiday in Wales, it was a long, long way from Betsicoid waterfalls back to the station. And I remember my mother using these songs, which we all sang along with, she taught us the words, to make the, the distance fly. I'd love to talk about 
the importance of the act of singing, because it's a physical exercise as well. So you think of the way a, a mother talks to a, a baby. Talks is probably too much, but the language will be primary, but the sounds will be akin to singing. And the pitch will be designed. Mothers know what sounds will comfort a baby. And so the, and don't forget that uh, the lullaby is something that stretches into classical music. It can find them in folk music. People would use the Sky Boat Song as a lullaby. Yes, that wonderful 19th century Scottish song, which recalls the journey of Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Battle of Culloden. It's a historic event reimagined as a lullaby. Sailors cry, carry the lad that's born to be king over the sea. Well, obviously, this is Joanna here. Listen, the thing is, speaking to you at home, is that my husband and I are rapidly running out of things to say to each other. We've been silent for the last two days. We've run out. So what we want you to do is to write in to us with any questions or comments or problems or anything you've got about music, which I can then funnel through to the maestro. So won't you email us on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we will deal with every problem and query and, you know, compliments very gladly received. Thank you so much. Melody and song are really central to us. It is a central musical feeling that we all have. We all know how to use musical elements. That's the important thing. Do you think we sing too little nowadays? Um, I mean, mostly churchgoers sing, because, and, the few, and that's a dwindling number of the... Yeah, of, yeah. I'm talking about Christian churches. But anyway, where hymns used to be part of it, singing hymns. Yes. And that's look, dwindled look, away. Look, we I... used to have that also in, in schools here. And now I can understand, as they get more and more varied religions, they don't want to sing hymns in the morning. But I think singing a song in the morning would be pretty good. I regret losing the school singing, but there are many choral societies in, in this country still, they are always, always filled with masses of people. So I don't think we've lost it. And of course, there's a lot of science to show that the act of singing, taking a deep breath and then singing in full voice is terribly good for you. It's a release, it's physical, it's communal, all of those good things. Is it rather like people who are runners who say that you, you get endorphins? I mean, you actually feel better as you go along. Yep. I, I've yet to meet, I mean, everybody I know says, if you sing with a choir or if you sing in a chorus or something, you can't be depressed. Somehow the, the singing, actual, as you say, the physical act of singing, somehow releases more body things which which make you feel not as sad as you used to feel. We all do this much more than we think, at least those of us that go to cricket matches and football matches. I remember when we won the Ashes in 2005 at the Oval, and <laughs> there was a spontaneous outbreak around the entire ground singing Jerusalem. Now, don't let's quibble about the words. Everybody wanted to sing as loudly as they possibly <laughs> yes. could. 
And it's rather interesting, instead of saying, oh, bravo, well done, and applauding, there was an outbreak of song. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing, I think. And don't forget, too, that probably very few people who do that and absolutely adore a football chant and finding everybody joining in, they probably haven't had any musical training. It's a perfectly natural understanding of how it works. Okay, go back to parlour songs. Nothing was recorded then, or if you did, it was on some old whistling machine like my Ariston here, which I shall play. Oh, hang on. I'm just going to literally go and play my Ariston for you. I think this has got a song on it. This has got Lucia di Lammermoor. It wheezes a bit, but do listen to this. Oh, no, she's gone dead. Oh, no, she's dead. God, I have to play this more often. They say you should always to keep her alive, but she's been in the heat and she doesn't like it. She gets her throat all damaged. <laughs> I might have to take her to the repair shop. But she plays away. But, but there was no recorded music. So in the old days, you had to provide your own songs and singing was one way and boys were on bikes delivering meat from the butchers would whistle a song and songs were carried that way. As soon as music was recorded and you could either have it on your personal little sort of radio system that you carried about with you, or now in earplugs, so it literally goes into your head, nobody can hear it around you, there's no need for singing. And so the brilliance of recorded music has killed the songbird in us. It's put a cage around us. We're nothing now. We can't sing. We can't make up songs. We don't think about it. Or if we do, we think about it as making up a pop song, which will then make millions. But nobody la-las around the street and sings um, as I was going to Strawberry Fair. Singing, singing, buttercups and daisies. The, the... Nobody whistles. I whistle in the morning, but that's because I'm 112 and people veer around me, actually. But I whistle when I go down to pick up the papers early in the morning. Um, songs are still very much alive in Wales and Scotland, and I'm always thrilled to know that it's really the act of being involved in a song. It's still very much alive very much alive. And also don't forget that the growth of groups and new musics, don't forget that a pop song is a song. And it was limited to about three minutes, well, until Led Zeppelin came along, of course, <laughs> <laughs> which I adore. But it is usually limited to three minutes. And when they get to the end of, uh, you know, coming around to the end of the form, it just chops off. But these are songs, and pop artists and rap artists are always bubbling away. I think also there is a growth of the song being embedded in a cultural base as well. They are just as real as folk songs would have been. You have to be clear about this. When you talk about folk song, you are talking about Norfolk folk songs, Suffolk folk songs, Derbyshire folk songs. You're talking about things that were very local. So I think it's very much alive, but in a more contemporary form. And I think also, with the rap in particular, the words have come back to having a serious part to play. So these are not just musical fabrications. These are statements and poetic constructions. They are, but of rap, which is articulacy, you know what I mean? It's, it's just vital because it's very fast and it's very articulate in that you've got to kind of hear it to get the impact of it. And we only see that from the great musical Hamilton. You've really got to pay attention. It's quite brilliantly crafted. What you don't usually come out doing 
is singing a tune. Singing the tune. Yeah, but or, it, saying, or saying all the words to a rap song. You don't usually do that. You might do it along with them. But then when you do it, what I'm saying is that those songs don't exist as songs. They exist as performances, which you then copy or sing along to. But when you think of the Foggy Foggy Dew, anybody can sing that. Yes. It's a song, it exists. Look, An you, old man can sing it, you, 20 people can sing it, a child can sing it. When I was a bachelor, I lived all alone. I worked at the weaver's trade. And the only, only thing that I did that was wrong was to woo a fair young maid. I wooed her Part of the Songs like the Foggy Foggy Dew, of which there's a beautiful Burl Ives rendition you can hear, were made popular in the south of England and all across the southern states of America because the vocal melodies are so memorable and were very easily spread for that simple I, reason. I know, but we mustn't just think of song as melody. If you think of Schubert's Winterreiser... This is. Um, I was actually thinking of that. Then. You, you were, you were, and Dichter Liebe by Schumann. The notes the singer sings are not necessarily a melody that you would remember. Which one are you thinking of, Stevie? Well, let's take Die Post, for example, the postman. Von der Straße hier ein Postlock klingt. They are a short construction about what music would suit the poet and the composer's intentions, what they want you to understand. So melody as such, you can deconstruct melody into something that is very classical and Western. If you listen to Arabian folk music, for want of a better term, these are not melodies the way that we would understand them here in our Western culture. So melody is not the essential thing. It is the, the mood. Is that clear? Yes, thank you, sir. It is clear. <laughs> no, sorry, sir. I seem to have. No, what I wanted to say. Am is I that being clear? I what, uh, say, uh, thinking of song as aria, therefore opera, I would have thought that two of the most successful ones, both given to women, are Casta Diva, Holy Goddess, which is, which is. Look, I've brought. I've done everything I possibly can. How could you treat me this way? when little butterfly is waiting and thinks that her man is going to return to her and he doesn't. I think those are perfect arias because they, within the storytelling, you know exactly what they're saying, you know exactly what's gone on. The audience can listen. Also, Stevie, you can sing it afterwards poorly because it's got a colossal range and you need a different kind of voice. But you can la-la along to it 
and you can sort of half whistle it. Our arias usually for women, no, because then we've got Nessun Dorma, that's an aria. No, an aria simply is a point in an opera when a solo singer homes in on something very particular. So take Handel, for example, which is recitative, you know, spoken singing, as it were, at conversational speed, and then the music will go into an aria. Now, in Handel's case, that aria will sum up one emotion, thinking about what someone has just done, thinking about the consequences, or it is explaining something that will happen, but it concentrates on just one of um, several things. So it might be anger, it might be sadness, all of the individual emotions. So let's try to think of an example here, Stevie. In Handel's opera Rinaldo, for instance, the character Almarina sings the most sensational aria, Lascia Chio Pianga, Let Me Weep, which is about her poignant fate in the Enchanted Garden. So an opera in time stops for a soloist to express very much more deeply what is happening inside them, what their thoughts are, what emotions they are feeling. Shakespeare did it with the soliloquies. Yes, but then you stop and you mull over something. And everybody Quite often you come to a conclusion. knows yeah. the words to be or not to be. And that is pondering an issue, a conflict, a problem. Mm -hmm. And then the action carries you forward. So Un Bel D, for example, One Fine Day, is an expression of butterflies way, way too idealized and romantic attitude to the man who seduced her. It's heartbreaking because the audience know perfectly well that this is all going to turn out terribly badly. And so that aria is someone in pure innocence singing the most divine, gentle melody. And everybody remembers. And then, of course, that melody, you remember it because it goes on a perfect shape down and then it picks up again. And all of it is yearning in this, the, the dream that he's going to come back and everything's, this is what he'll say it's to me. It's a belief that everything is perfect. And it's the opposite. Pure and innocent. Mm. Um, opera does this. It can show you something on stage that is completely at odds with what you in the audience understand is the reality. 
Puccini does this better than almost anyone else. He'll have a character on stage who you know is going to come to no good for no fault of their own, actually, quite often. And so it's the pain of empathy. Do you think that was brought forward into musicals, for instance? Because a lot of people listening will go, but hang on, that's the same as Some it's Enchanted exactly Evening or something like that. Or even through Gilbert and Sullivan, slightly different. But some of those uh, great things, Carousel or, you know... West Side Story. West Side Story. Those, yep. those, those huge songs in that are operatic by birth, in, it's a, in exactly a way. exactly the same. They are two arms on the same beast, opera and musicals. Because musicals, of course, started as a dialogue and then would break into song. There are moments when action happens and then you are given an opportunity with an aria or a song. Don't forget, Lloyd Webber has a hit song, a completely barnstorming, world-beating hit song in every one of his musicals. Uh, you know, midnight, da da dee da dee dee da Midnight, not a sound from the pavement Has the moon lost her memory She is smiling alone In the lamplight the withered leaves collect at my feet Everybody remembers that tune mm. and it's exactly the same form as opera and the same intent and the same effect. I wish we could talk about this for much longer, but we can't. I wanted to talk to you about, I don't know, jazz and whether that has songs. Yeah, and yes, and it does. spirituals and blues. Lute songs, what, 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 what a troubadour did with his guitar and his words. Well, I'm sorry, we haven't time today. <laughs> Thank you, Maestro. <laughs> if we had to leave with a song in our heart. Which aria would you choose, Steve? <laughs> well, <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was one for my baby and one more for the road. Because Frank Sinatra had singing that song, it sums everything up, really. But Rusalka, Vorjak, Rusalka's the most wonderful fairy tale, which feels so human in the way that a fairy tale can. And Rusalka's song to the moon is all about hope for a life that she can never really attain because she is a, a mermaid and she falls in love with a prince. It's one of Vorjak's most utterly beautiful pieces. this episode, you heard the following music. The Lincoln Chapocia, arranged by Benjamin Britten. It was performed by Sir Peter Piers and Benjamin Britten. The publisher was Boozy & Co, and the record label was Decca Music Group. The Song of the Volga Boatman, performed by the Alexandrov Ensemble. The record label was Cosmos. Come Into the Garden Maud, composed and performed by John McCormack. The record label was Sanctuary Records Group. The Skyboat Song, performed by the Corries. 
The record label was Mercury Records Limited. Foggy Foggy Dew, composed and performed by Burl Ives. The record label was Geffen Records. Schubert's Winterizer, D911, number 13, Die Post, performed by Dietrich Fischer Dieskau and Gerald Moore. The record label was Deutsche Grammophon. Norma, Act 1, Casta Diva, composed by Vincenzo Bellini. It was performed by Maria Callas and the choir and orchestra of Milan Scala Theatre. The record label was Warner Classics, Warner Music UK. Rinaldo, Act 2, Lascia Chiopianga, composed by George Frederick Handel. It was performed by Elizabeth Watts. The Sacconi Quartet, Streetwise Opera, and conducted by Duncan Ward. The record label was Streetwise Opera. Un Bel D from Giacomo Puccini's Madame Butterfly Act II. It was performed by Andrea Bocelli, Carla Maria Iso, Marie- Mariella Guarnera, Marzio Giossi, Antonio de Angelis, Antonio Tascini, the Puccini Festival Choir, Bruno Nicoli, Orchestra Sita Larica, the conductor was Alberto Varanesi, and the record label was Fondanzioni Festival Pucciano Torri del Lago Puccini. Memory from the musical Cats, composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was performed by Barbara Streisand. The publisher was Faber Music Limited and the Really Useful Group Limited. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Song to the Moon from Anton Dvorak's Rosalka, performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Arthur Davies, Josephine Barslow and the Royal Opera House Chorus. The conductor was Robin Stapleton and the record label was BOFM Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.